Section 9 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brandon Tannum. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 5, Part 1. The arguments usually alleged in support of free will refuted. Objections reduced to three principal heads. 1. Four absurdities advanced by the opponents of the orthodox doctrine concerning the slavery of the will, stated and refuted, sections 1 through 5. 2. The passages of scripture which they pervert in favour of their error, reduced to five heads and explained, sections 6 through 15. 3. Five other passages quoted in defence of free will expounded, sections 16 through 19. Sections 1. Absurd fictions of opponents first refuted, and then certain passages of scripture explained. Answer by a negative, confirmation of the answer. 2. Another absurdity of Aristotle and Pelagius, answer by a distinction answer fortified by passages from Augustine, and supported by the authority of an apostle. 3. Third absurdity borrowed from the words of Chrysostom, answer by a negative. 4. Fourth absurdity urged of old by the Pelagians, answer from the works of Augustine, illustrated by the testimony of our Saviour. Another answer which explains the use of exhortations. 5. A third answer, which contains a fuller explanation of the second. Objection to the previous answers. Objection refuted. Summary of the previous answers. 6. First class of arguments which the Neo-Pelagians draw from Scripture in defence of free will. 1. The law demands perfect obedience, and therefore God either mocks us or acquires things which are not in our power. Answer by distinguishing precepts into three sorts. The first of these considered in this and the following section. 7. This general argument from the law of no avail to the patrons of free will. Promises conjoined with precepts prove that our salvation is to be found in the grace of God. Objection that the law was given to the persons living at the time. Answer confirmed by passages from Augustine. 8. A special consideration of the three classes of precepts of no avail to the defenders of free will. 1. Precepts enjoining us to turn to God. 2. Precepts which simply speak of the observance of the law. 3. Precepts which enjoin us to persevere in the grace of God. 9. Objection. Answer. Confirmation of the answer from Jeremiah. Another objection refuted. 10. A second class of arguments in defence of free will, drawn from the promises of God, viz. that the promises which God makes to those who seek him are vain if it is not in our power to do or not do the thing required. Answer which explains the use of promises and removes the supposed inconsistency. 11. 
third class of arguments drawn from the divine upbraidings that it is in vain to upbraid us for evils which it is not in our power to avoid answer sinners are condemned by their own consciences and therefore the divine upbraidings are just moreover there is a twofold use in these upbraidings various passages of scripture explained by means of the foregoing answers twelve objection founded on the words of moses refutation by the words of an apostle confirmation by argument thirteen fourth class of arguments by the defenders of free will god waits to see whether or not sinners will repent therefore they can repent answer by a dilemma passage in hosea explained fourteen fifth class of arguments in defence of free will good and bad works described as our own therefore we are capable of both answer by an exposition which shows that this argument is unavailing objection drawn from analogy answer the nature and mode of divine agency in the elect fifteen conclusion of the answer to the last class of arguments sixteen third and last division of the chapter concerning certain passages of scripture one a passage from genesis its true meaning explained seventeen two passage from the epistle to the romans explanation refutation of an objection another refutation a third refutation from augustine three a passage from first corinthians answer to it eighteen four a passage from ecclesiastes explanation another explanation nineteen five a passage from luke explanation allegorical arguments weak another explanation a third explanation a fourth from augustine conclusion and summary of the whole discussion concerning free will one enough would seem to have been said on the subject of man's will were there not some who endeavour to urge him to his ruin by a false opinion of liberty and at the same time in order to support their own opinion assail ours first they gather together some absurd inferences by which they endeavour to bring odium upon our doctrine as if it were abhorrent to common sense and then they oppose it with certain passages of scripture both devices we shall dispose of in their order if sin say they is necessary it ceases to be sin if it is voluntary it may be avoided such too were the weapons with which pelagius assailed augustine but we are unwilling to crush them by the weight of his name until we have satisfactorily disposed of the objections themselves i deny therefore that sin ought to be the less imputed because it is necessary and on the other hand i deny the inference that sin may be avoided because it is voluntary if any one will dispute with god and endeavour to evade his judgment by pretending that he could not have done otherwise the answer already given is sufficient that it is owing not to creation but the corruption of nature that man has become the slave of sin and can will nothing but evil for whence that impotence of which the wicked so readily avail themselves as an excuse but just because adam voluntarily subjected himself to the tyranny of the devil 
Hence the corruption by which we are held bound as with chains originated in the first man's revolt from his maker. If all men are justly held guilty of this revolt, let them not think themselves excused by a necessity in which they see the clearest cause of their condemnation. But this I have fully explained above, and in the case of the devil himself, have given an example of one who sins not less voluntarily than he sins necessarily. I have also shown, in the case of the elect angels, that though their will cannot decline from good, it does not therefore cease to be will. This Bernard shrewdly explains when he says that we are the more miserable in this, that the necessity is voluntary, and yet this necessity so binds us who are subject to it that we are the slaves of sin, as we have already observed. The second step in the reasoning is vicious because it leaps from voluntary to free, whereas we have proved above that a thing may be done voluntarily, though not subject to free choice. 2. They add, that unless virtue and vice proceed from free choice, it is absurd either to punish man or reward him. Although this argument is taken from Aristotle, I admit that it is also used by Chrysostom and Jerome. Jerome, however, does not disguise that it was familiar to the Pelagians. He even quotes their words, If grace acts in us, grace, and not we who do the work, will be crowned. With regard to punishment, I answer, that it is properly inflicted on those by whom the guilt is contracted. What matters it whether you sin with a free or an enslaved judgment, so long as you sin voluntarily, especially when man is proved to be a sinner because he is under the bondage of sin. In regard to the rewards of righteousness, is there any great absurdity in acknowledging that they depend on the kindness of God, rather than our own merits? How often do we meet in Augustine with this expression, God crowns not our merits but his own gifts, and the name of reward is given not to what is due to our merits, but to the recompense of grace previously bestowed. Some seem to think there is acuteness in the remark, that there is no place at all for the mind, if good works do not spring from free will as their proper source. But in thinking this so very unreasonable, they are widely mistaken. Augustine does not hesitate uniformly to describe as necessary the very thing which they count it impious to acknowledge. Thus he asks, what is human merit? He who came to bestow not due recompense, but free grace, although himself free from sin, and the giver of freedom, found all men sinners. Again, if you are to receive your due, you must be punished. What then is done? God has not rendered you due punishment, but bestows upon you unmerited grace. If you wish to be an alien from grace, boast your merits. Again, you are nothing in yourself. Sin is yours, merit God's. Punishment is your due. And when a reward shall come, God shall crown his own gifts, not your merits. To the same effect he elsewhere says that grace is not of merit, but merit of grace. And shortly after he concludes that God by his gifts anticipates all our merit, 
that he may thereby manifest his own merit and give what is absolutely free because he sees nothing in us that can be a ground of salvation but why extend a list of quotations when similar sentiments are ever and anon recurring in his works the abettors of this error would see a still better refutation of it if they would attend to the source from which the apostle derives the glory of the saints moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified romans eight thirty on what ground then the apostle being judge second timothy four eight are believers crowned because by the mercy of god not their own exertions they are predestinated called and justified away then with the vain fear that unless free will stand there will no longer be any merit it is most foolish to take alarm and recoil from that which scripture inculcates if thou didst receive it why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it first corinthians four seven you see how everything is denied to free will for the very purpose of leaving no room for merit and yet as the beneficence and liberality of god are manifold and inexhaustible the grace which he bestows upon us inasmuch as he makes it our own he recompenses as if the virtuous acts were our own three but it is added the terms which seem to be borrowed from chrysostom that if our will possesses not the power of choosing good or evil all who are partakers of the same nature must be alike good or alike bad a sentiment akin to this occurs in the work de vocatione hentium usually attributed to ambrose in which it is argued that no one would ever decline from fate did not the grace of god leave us in a mutable state it is strange that such men should have so blundered how did it fail to occur to chrysostom that it is divine election which distinguishes among men we have not the least hesitation to admit what paul strenuously maintains that all without exception are depraved and given over to wickedness but at the same time we add that through the mercy of god all do not continue in wickedness therefore while we all labour naturally under the same disease those only recover health to whom the lord is pleased to put forth his healing hand the others whom in just judgment he passes over pine and rot away till they are consumed and this is the only reason why some persevere to the end and others after beginning their course fall away perseverance is the gift of god which he does not lavish promiscuously on all but imparts to whom he pleases if it is asked how the difference arises why some steadily persevere and others proved deficient in steadfastness we can give no other reason than that the lord by his mighty power strengthens and sustains the former so that they perish not while he does not furnish the same assistance to the latter but leaves them to be monuments of instability for still it is insisted that exhortations are vain warnings superfluous and rebukes absurd if the sinner possesses not the power to obey 
when similar objections were urged against Augustine, he was obliged to write his book, De Corruptione et Grazia, where he has fully disposed of them. The substance of his answer to his opponents is this, O oh man, learn from the precept what you ought to do. Learn from correction, that it is your own fault you have not the power, and learn in prayer, whence it is that you may receive the power. Very similar is the argument of his book, De Spiritu et Litera, in which he shows that God does not measure the precepts of his law by human strength, but after ordering what is right, freely bestows on his elect the power of fulfilling it. The subject, indeed, does not require a long discussion. For we are not singular in our doctrine, but have Christ and all his apostles with us. Let our opponents, then, consider how they are to come off victorious in a contest which they wage with such antagonists. Christ declares, Without me ye can do nothing. John twenty five. Does he the less censure and chastise those who, without him, did wickedly? Does he the less exhort every man to be intent on good works? How severely does Paul inveigh against the Corinthians for want of charity? 1 Corinthians 3.3 3. And yet at the same time he prays that charity may be given them by the Lord. In the epistle to the Romans he declares that It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9.16 still he ceases not to warn exhort and rebuke them why then do they not expostulate with god for making sport with men by demanding of them things which he alone can give and chastising them for faults committed through want of his grace why do they not admonish paul to spare those who have it not in their power to will or to run unless the mercy of god which has forsaken them proceed as if the doctrine were not founded on the strongest reason, reason which no serious inquirer can fail to perceive. The extent to which doctrine, and exhortation, and rebuke, are in themselves able to change the mind, is indicated by Paul when he says, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 in like manner we see that moses delivers the precepts of the law under a heavy sanction and that the prophets strongly urge and threaten transgressors though they at the same time confess that men are wise only when an understanding heart is given them that it is the proper work of god to circumcise the heart and to change it from stone into flesh to write his law on their inward parts in short, to renew souls, so as to give efficacy to doctrine. 5. What purpose, then, is served by exhortations? It is this, as the wicked, with obstinate heart, despise them, they will be a testimony against them when they stand at the judgment seat of God. Nay, they even now strike and lash their consciences. For however they may petulantly deride, they cannot disapprove them. But what, you will ask, can a miserable mortal do, when softness of heart, which is necessary to obedience, is denied him? I ask in reply, why have recourse to evasion, since hardness of heart cannot be imputed to any but the sinner himself? The ungodly, 
though they would gladly evade the divine admonitions, are forced, whether they will or not, to feel their power. But their chief use is to be seen in the case of believers, in whom the Lord, while he always acts by his Spirit, he omits not the instrumentality of his word, but employs it, and not without effect. Let this, then, be a standing truth, that the whole strength of the godly consists in the grace of God, according to the words of the prophet, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes. Ezekiel eleven, nineteen and 20 But it will be asked, why are they now admonished of their duty, and not rather left to the guidance of the Spirit? Why are they urged with exhortations when they cannot hasten any faster than the Spirit impels them? And why are they chastised, if at any time they go astray, seeing that this is caused by the necessary infirmity of the flesh? O man, who art thou that replies against God? If in order to prepare us for the grace which enables us to obey exhortation, God sees me to employ exhortation, what is there in such an arrangement for you to carp and scoff at? Had exhortations and reprimands no other profit with the godly than to convince them of sin, they could be not be deemed altogether useless. Now when, by the Spirit of God acting within, they have the effect of inflaming their desire of good, of arousing them from lethargy, of destroying the pleasure and honeyed sweetness of sin, making it hateful and loathsome, who will presume to cavil at them as superfluous? Should any one wish a clearer reply, let him take the following. God works in his elect in two ways, inwardly by his spirit, outwardly by his word by his spirit illuminating their minds and training their hearts to the practice of righteousness he makes them new creatures while by his word he stimulates them to long and seek for this renovation in both he exerts the might of his hand in proportion to the measure in which he dispenses them the word when addressed to the reprobate though not effectual for their amendment has another use it urges their conscience now, and will render them more inexcusable on the day of judgment. Thus our Saviour, while declaring that none can come to him but those whom the Father draws, and that the elect come after they have heard and learned of the Father, John six forty four and 45, does not lay aside the office of teacher, but carefully invites those who must be taught inwardly by the Spirit, before they can make any profit. The reprobate again are admonished by Paul that the doctrine is not in vain, because, while it is in them a savour of death unto death, it is still a sweet savour unto God. 2 Corinthians 2, 16 6. The enemies of this doctrine are at great pains in collecting passages of Scripture, as if, unable to accomplish anything by their weight, they were to overwhelm us by their number. But as in battle, when it comes to close quarters, an unwarlike multitude, how great soever the pomp and show they make, give way after a few blows, and take to flight, so we shall have little difficulty here in disposing of our opponents and their host. All the passages which they pervert in opposing us are very similar in their import. 
and hence when they are arranged under their proper heads one answer will suffice for several it is not necessary to give a separate consideration to each precepts seem to be regarded as their stronghold these they think so accommodated to our abilities as to make it follow as a matter of course that whatever they enjoin we are able to perform accordingly they run over all the precepts and by them fix the measure of our power for say they when god enjoins meekness submission love chastity piety and holiness and when he forbids anger pride theft uncleanness idolatry and the like he either mocks us or only requires things which are in our power all the precepts which they thus heap together may be divided into three classes some enjoin a first conversion unto god others speak simply of the observance of the law and others inculcate perseverance in the grace which has been received we shall first treat of precepts in general and then proceed to consider each separate class that the abilities of man are equal to the precepts of the divine law has long been a common idea and has some show of plausibility it is founded however on the grossest ignorance of the law those who deem it a kind of sacrilege to say that the observance of the law is impossible insist as their strongest argument that if it is so the law has been given in vain for they speak just as if paul had never said anything about the law but what pray is meant by saying that the law was added because of transgressions by the law is the knowledge of sin i had not known sin but by the law the law entered so that the offence might abound galatians three nineteen romans three twenty seven seven five twenty is it meant that the law was to be limited to our strength lest it should be given in vain is it not rather meant that it was placed far above us in order to convince us of our utter feebleness paul indeed declares that charity is the end and fulfilling of the law first timothy one five but when he prays that the minds of the thessalonians may be filled with it he clearly enough acknowledges that the law sounds in our ears without profit if god does not implant it thoroughly in our hearts first thessalonians three twelve seven i admit indeed that if the scripture taught nothing else on the subject than that the law is a rule of life by which we ought to regulate our pursuits i should at once assent to their opinion but since it carefully and clearly explains that the use of the law is manifold the proper course is to learn from that explanation what the power of the law is in man in regard to the present question while it explains what our duty is it teaches that the power of obeying it is derived from the goodness of god and is accordingly urges us to pray that this power may be given us if there were merely a command and no promise it would be necessary to try whether our strength were sufficient to fulfil the command but since promises are annexed which proclaim not only that aid but that our whole power is derived from divine grace they at the same time abundantly testify that we are not only unequal to the observance of the law but mere fools in regard to it 
Therefore let us hear no more of a proportion between our ability and the divine precepts, as if the Lord had accommodated the standard of justice which he was to give in the law to our feeble capacities. We should rather gather from the promises how ill-provided we are, having in everything so much need of grace. But, say they, who will believe that the Lord designed his law for blocks and stones? There is no wish to make any one believe this. The ungodly are neither blocks nor stones, when, taught by the law that their lusts are offensive to God, they are proved guilty by their own confession. Nor are the godly blocks or stones, when admonished of their powerlessness, they take refuge in grace. To this effect are the pithy sayings of Augustine, God orders what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to ask of him. There is a great utility in precepts, if all that is given to free will is to do greater honour to divine grace. Fate acquires what the law requires, nay, the law requires, in order that fate may acquire what is thus required, nay, more. God demands of us fate itself, and finds not what he thus demands, until, by giving, he makes it possible to find it. Again he says, let God give what he orders, and order what he wills. 8. This will be more clearly seen by again attending to the three classes of precepts to which we above referred. Both in the law and in the prophets, God repeatedly calls upon us to turn to him. But on the other hand, the prophet exclaims, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. He orders us to circumcise the foreskins of our hearts, but Moses declares that that circumcision is made by his own hand. In many passages he demands a new heart, but in others he declares that he gives it. As Augustine says, what God promises, we ourselves do not through choice or nature, but he himself does by grace. The same observation is made when enumerating the rules of Deconius, he states the third in effect to be, that we distinguish carefully between the law and the promises, or between the commands and the grace. Let them now go and gather from precepts what man's power of obedience is, when they would destroy the divine grace by which the precepts themselves are accomplished. The precepts of the second class are simply those which enjoin us to worship God, to obey and adhere to his will, to do his pleasure and follow his teaching. But innumerable passages testify that every degree of purity, piety, holiness and justices which we possess is his gift. Of the third class of precepts is the exhortation of Paul and Barnabas to the proselytes, as recorded by Luke. They persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Acts 13.43 But the source from which this power of continuance must be sought is elsewhere explained by Paul, when he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 In another passage he says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 but as the thing here enjoined could not be performed by man, he prays in behalf of the Thessalonians that God would count them worthy of this calling and fulfil all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of fate with power. Second Thessalonians 1, 11. 
In the same way, in the second epistle to the Corinthians, when treating of alms, he repeatedly commends their good and pious inclination. A little farther on, however, he exclaims, Thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 and 17. If Titus could not even perform the office of being a mouth to exhort others, except in so far as God suggested, how could the others have been voluntary agents in acting? if the Lord Jesus had not directed our hearts. 9. Some, who would be thought more acute, endeavour to evade all these passages by the quibble that there is nothing to hinder us from contributing our part, while God at the same time supplies our deficiencies. They, moreover, adduce passages from the prophets, in which the work of our conversion seems to be shared between God and ourselves. Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 1.3 The kind of assistance which God gives us has been shown above, and need not now be repeated. One thing only I ask to be conceded to me, that it is vain to think we have a power of fulfilling the law, merely because we are enjoined to obey it, since in order to our fulfilling the divine precepts, the grace of the lawgiver is both necessary and has been promised to us. This much at least is clear, that more is demanded of us than we are able to pay. Nor can any cavil evade the declaration in Jeremiah that the covenant which God made with his ancient people was broken because it was only of the letter, that to make it effectual it was necessary for the spirit to interpose and train the heart to obedience. Jeremiah thirty one thirty two, The opinion we now combat is not aided by the words, Turn unto me, and I will turn unto you. The turning there spoken of is not that by which God renews the heart unto repentance, but that in which, by bestowing prosperity, he manifests his kindness and favour, just in the same way as he sometimes expresses his displeasure by sending adversity. The people complaining under the many calamities which befell them, that they were forsaken by God, he answers that his kindness would not fail them if they would return to a right course, and to himself the standard of righteousness. The passage, therefore, is wrested from its proper meaning when it is made to countenance the idea that the work of conversion is divided between God and man. We have only glanced briefly at this subject, as the proper place for it will occur when we come to treat of the law. 10. The second class of objections is akin to the former. They allege the promises in which the Lord makes a paction with our will. Such are the following. Seek good, and not evil, that ye may live. Amos 5.14 If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah 1, 19 and 20. If thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then thou shalt not remove. Jeremiah 4, 1. It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and do all the commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Deuteronomy 28, 1. 
There are other similar passages, Leviticus 26.3, etc. They think that the blessings contained in these promises are offered to our will absurdly and in mockery, if it is not in our power to secure or reject them. It is, indeed, an easy matter to indulge in declamatory complaint on this subject, to say that we are cruelly mocked by the Lord, when he declares that his kindness depends on our wills, if we are not masters of our wills that it would be a strange liberality on the part of god to set his blessings before us while we have no power of enjoying them a strange certainty of promises which to prevent their ever being fulfilled are made to depend on an impossibility of promises of this description which have a condition next to them we shall elsewhere speak and make it plain that there is nothing absurd in the impossible fulfilment of them in regard to the matter in hand, I deny that God cruelly mocks us when he invites us to merit blessings which he knows we are altogether unable to merit. The promises being offered alike to believers and to the ungodly have their use in regard to both. As God by his precepts stings the consciences of the ungodly, so as to prevent them from enjoying their sins while they have no remembrance of his judgments, so, in his promises, he in a manner takes them to witness how unworthy they are of his kindness. Who can deny that it is most just and most becoming in God to do good to those who worship him, and to punish with due severity those who despise his majesty? God, therefore, proceeds in due order when, though the wicked are bound by the fetters of sin, he lays down the law in his promises that he will do them good only if they depart from their wickedness. This would be right, though his only object were to let them understand that they are deservedly excluded from the favour due to his true worshippers. On the other hand, as he desires by all means to stir up believers to supplicate his grace, it surely should not seem strange that he attempts to accomplish by promises the same thing which, as we have shown, he to their great benefit accomplishes by means of precepts. Being taught by precepts what the will of God is, we are reminded of our wretchedness in being so completely at variance with that will and at the same time are stimulated to invoke the aid of the spirit to guide us into the right path but as our indolence is not sufficiently aroused by precepts promises are added that they may attract us by their sweetness and produce a feeling of love for the precept the greater our desire of righteousness the greater will be our earnestness to obtain the grace of god and thus it is that in the protestations if we be willing if thou shalt hearken the lord neither attributes to us a full power of willing and hearkening nor yet mocks us for our impotence end of section nine